Welcome to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast, hosted by Collegium Student Fellows together with senior members of our team. This podcast features interviews with visiting scholars and faculty authors of new work that help us to appreciate the shape of life today, both in its dynamism and in its timelessness. Here we approach the mysteries of reality with wonder, exploring from a wide variety of disciplinary angles, all of which revolve around a core commitment to the unity of truth. Here, authors make the case for how and why their books are important, not just for specialists in their own field, but for all of us inside the university and out who seek wisdom for a life well lived. Today, we're joined by Professor David Devil of the University of St. Thomas, where he is an assistant professor of Catholic studies and the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. Professor Devil completed his PhD in historical theology from Fordham University, and his specialties include Blessed John Henry Newman, G.K. Chesterton, the English Catholic Revival, and political philosophy. He is the winner of the 2013 Novak Award for his scholarship on religion and public life, and serves on the Newman Studies Journal and Newman Association of America. He has published in a number of books and academic journals, as well as over 250 articles and reviews in more popular outlets, such as Commonweal, First Things, America Magazine, National Review, and The Wall Street Journal. He is currently editing a volume on Gulag survivor and Russian novelist and historian Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Today, he joins us to talk about Blessed John Henry Newman, soon to be a saint, his legacy and his thoughts really on a variety of topics from ecumenism to the idea of a university. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we wanted to start with kind of giving our listeners a sense of really who Blessed John Henry Newman was, just in case they're not really familiar with sort of his life or legacy. Give us a little sense of kind of who he was. Newman was born in 1801 in London. And he was the oldest of six children. His father was a banker and a brewer. His business collapsed at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. So Newman was from a kind of middle-class family that had some difficulties. He had a perfect sense, he said, of the catechism. And he had a great knowledge of scripture, but he wasn't personally pious as a young child. He had a first conversion experience that lasted about six months When he was about 15, one of his teachers, who was an Anglican clergyman, gave him a number of books to read. And over time, he said he got an impression of dogma in his mind and the sense that God was present to him and had chosen him to receive salvation and to know his truth. He proceeded then in a couple of years to Oxford, still full of kind of a newfound zeal of a convert. Initially, he had thought he might study law, but he began to feel that God was calling him to ministry. And so after his studies at Oxford, he uh, entered the Anglican ministry and also served as a fellow at one of the colleges there. And he continued to do that until the early 1840s. In the meantime, he had begun to discover again the fathers of the church. And in 1833, He began with several other members of the Anglican clergy, particularly at Oxford, a movement called the Tract Movement. Mm -hmm. They printed fairly cheap tracts, and the idea behind the tracts was to recall the Anglican Church to its Catholic heritage and to the teachings of the fathers of the Church and to many of the more Catholic side of things than had been present. This 
movement was a very dynamic movement. It started to gather people from all over Oxford, but all over the nation of England behind it, but also against it. At a certain point in the 1830s, he began to have doubts. Maybe it's not true that I can be Catholic outside of the Roman Catholic Church. Hmm. In 1838, 39, he began to have a number of events, things that he read that convinced him that he needed to ask this question seriously. Hmm. And over a period of six or seven years, he discerned this question. And by 1845, he had worked it out sufficiently, and he believed that God had revealed to him the answer to this. And so on October 9th, 1845, he was received into the Catholic Church by a Passionist priest Hmm. who was passing through the area. From there, he discerned what God wanted of him, and he felt that as a Catholic, too, he should be a priest. And so he was ordained to the priesthood. Hmm. Shortly thereafter, he studied in Rome. And then he founded the religious congregation of the Oratory, which is a kind of group of priests operating within a diocese, mm-hmm. and they have a kind of a rule of life. He was placed in Birmingham, England, which was an industrial town full of Irish people. It was away from the sort of the academic life of Oxford and away mm-hmm. from the, you know, the center of life in London. Right. And he spent the rest of his life there effectively with some intervening times. He spent about seven years in Ireland in the 1850s, trying to establish a Catholic university. That was a sort of a mixed bag of success and failure. He returned to the oratory and spent the rest of the time defending the faith. Probably his most famous book was the Apologia Pro Vita Sua in 1864, which was a defense of his Anglican career and the Catholic priesthood after an Anglican priest had accused him in Macmillan's magazine of promoting lying as a positive good and saying that, well, that's typical of Catholic priests. That kind of revived his standing in the nation of England. People were convinced by Newman that he was an honest man. He never really left the public eye after that. He was in a little bit of trouble in Rome because of an article that he wrote which told about the laity and how they had often been the bulwark against heresy and and schism at times when bishops sometimes and priests went off the deep end. By the 1870s, he was fully rehabilitated in England, but he was also fully rehabilitated in the Catholic Church because he wrote a number of works defending the Church's teaching, particularly after the declaration of papal infallibility at the First Vatican Council. Hmm. He was named a cardinal by Pope Leo XIII. Hmm. It was the first non-bishop cardinal in several hundred years, in fact. And he died in 1890 at the age of 89. And he was sufficiently well-known still that 15,000 people lined the streets of Birmingham for his funeral. Um, Since then, his his reputation has only grown, and he was named a blessed about nine years ago. And he will be canonized as a saint, hopefully this summer or fall, uh, by Pope Francis. Something that strikes me from hearing that description is the fact that although he was obviously like steeped in the sort of academic life for a lot of his life, he also had this ability to connect with the laity, with the masses, with the people, mm-hmm. enough that, you know, 15,000 people line the streets in Birmingham. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to sort of him as a preacher and what really connected him to the lady and took him away from just being a sort of academic and actually being able to sort of speak to a broader audience. When he was first ordained, as an Anglican, he had a little church in Oxford called St. Clement's. Mm. And he actually made it his his goal to visit every single family or person in the parish. Mm. 
And that was his attitude. A pastor was meant to be somebody who really did know the sheep. Hmm. And so although he did spend a lot of time with academics, he knew ordinary people. And he continued that throughout his Anglican ministry. Hmm. Again, he had a foot in the ivory tower, but he was not limited to talking to those kinds of people. Hmm. He knew his parishioners well. Right. The same went when he was a Catholic. Hmm. As I said, he established his oratory in Birmingham, which was hmm. not a center of culture and intellect, but it was instead largely comprised of immigrant Irish workers and factories. His oratory there had a school, a kind of secondary boarding school for Catholic youth, hmm. which did you know, have a clientele that was more upper to middle class, but his parish had all sorts of people in it, and he ran catechetical programs for Catholics who worked in factories and hmm. did all sorts of things. The late Marvin O'Connell, a great Catholic historian, wrote an article about 25 years ago about Newman, the Victorian pastor, and how active he was hmm. in taking care of his flock, whoever they were. Hmm. A lot of people were sort of resentful that this great intellect was, you know, kind of out in the sticks. Right. At one point, he was invited to give a series of lectures by George Talbot, who was another English convert and a chamberlain to the Pope. And Talbot said something to the effect of, you know, you shouldn't waste your time there. You should be preaching to the important people. And, hmm. and Newman said, well, they have souls here, too. <laughs> and and that's what he cared about, was hmm. the care of souls at whatever level that they were. That's really beautiful, because I think, at least, you know, in my own knowledge of Newman, I sort of think of him as sort of this academic. His writing is sometimes hard to sort of parse through. But I think it, when you read his sermons and his letters, you really kind of get to see him as a preacher and as really a real man. You've said this before and others as well, um, this idea that Newman was kind of prophetic in many ways or sort of prescient in that, I guess, this desire to really have this focus on the laity and the importance of really engaging with them as a people. And I'm wondering if you see that as important for today and sort of engaging the laity in a, in a time where maybe there's people falling away, but also kind of post-Vatican II, this sort of, this turn towards like holiness is for all, and really it's not just for clergy or the theologians, but it's really for, for everyone, for the whole church body. And I wonder if Newman informed that, or whether he was just sort of seeing ahead of his time. I think it's sometimes, it's a stereotype that Catholics have this sort of you know, two-track system of mm -hmm. sort of the professional Christians, the clergy, or the religious. And I mean, right. I think that's been a problem in, in Protestant circles as well. Yeah. But it certainly has been a problem. And many people have addressed that St. Francis de Sales was hmm. one who encouraged holiness for everybody. I think right. all of the ancient church did so as well. But Newman hmm. did address a certain sort of notion that, well, what are the lady for? Well, they're there to pay, pray, and obey. And his point was that, no, everybody is called to the same high standard of holiness. And I don't think he was sort of leveling everybody and saying, well, priests are no different. I think he right. felt there was a higher call for those who were called to priesthood or religious life. And, mm -hmm. and that was symbolized by things that they gave up in terms of wealth and, and marriage and, and family. Mm -hmm. But he did think that lay people were often the key to what was going on and what was going to be success. You know, there was a lot of excitement because after he converted, there were a number of high-profile conversions. Hmm. Some people were talking about, wow, the whole of England is going to be brought back into the Catholic fold. And right. His point was, we don't have the resources to do that, hmm. number one. Yeah. And number two, it's not going to happen as long as the laity are not instructed hmm. because they're the ones who have that contact with all of these other people. And so his, right. his goal was a laity that was both pious, but also well-informed. Hmm. And his ideal for Catholic higher education was that 
not every layperson has to be a sort of technical philosopher and theologian, but, mm-hmm. you know, he stressed something, you know, that he called lay theology, which mm-hmm. is a notion of how to defend the church, a basic mm-hmm. sense of the church's history and the course of salvation history, and a knowledge of scripture and doctrine. Mm-hmm. And he felt that if we had a laity like that, yeah. a lot of progress would be made. And so mm-hmm. he he tended to pour cold water on people who thought, well, we can just do it with a few priests and religious. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wonder if this maybe ties into his ability to have a sort of patience as well with himself, with the sort of society, with, you know, figures in leadership, but also as the laity in that something you have spoken about is sort of the sense of it wasn't yet the time, but having the sense that like all will be well and it'll sort of continue to unfold as sort of in God's timing. And I think that's something that you kind of see starting to happen even more, the sort of idea of having this sort of lay theology where you have these different programs and institutes popping up around the country and around the world, I would presume, that are sort of trying to kind of bring this sort of merging of the intellectual life, but also the spiritual life. He was a great defender of sort of ordinary and unintellectual Christians. Hmm. His great work, an essay on the grammar of assent, which was about basically how do we know religious truth? He was a defender of those who simply saw the truth and accepted it. But he right. said that for people who have intellectual gifts, mm-hmm. there is a kind of duty to explore those. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a discipleship of the mind that's required. There's a kind of danger to it mm-hmm. because when you start reflecting on these truths, it brings out the intellectual difficulties. But right. he said that it's required in order that you actually strengthen your assent to the truth because you know it better. Mm-hmm. And it also makes you capable of explaining it to others. Mm-hmm. And that's a positive duty. What has been your biggest dogmatic obstacle? And by that, I specifically mean the most difficult piece of information or belief to understand and work through as a professor within the Catholic Studies Department at the University of St. Thomas. In your faith tradition specifically, what has been that biggest challenge or hurdle to jump over? I don't know if there's been a, a sort of a dogmatic struggle per se, but I think it's difficult to balance certain teachings about the church. In coming into the church, one of my biggest questions was authority. Mm-hmm. And I felt that the Catholic Church answered that. But the Catholic Church's answer about authority is actually much more nuanced than people think. It's not a sort of like, well, the Pope sort of says something and that's just that. I mm-hmm. mean, it's a very complicated conversation that goes on. Newman talked about how in his essay on the development of doctrine, the book that he wrote on his way into the church in which he was wrestling with these issues, he talked about the fact that how we sort of penetrate into the truth of the gospel. He actually used the word percolation. Hmm. You know, it kind of has to go through all of these different minds. And one theologian will say this, and one theologian will say that. And then there'll be a kind of declaration from some bishops, and then some other bishops will say something. It's a very difficult thing. And I think it's that historical process of the church's motion through time that's most difficult to deal with. Because Hmm. while they are called by God, they're also... You know, they have feet made of clay, and they make mistakes, and there are some bad ones. And so, you know, I think it's not necessarily a doctrine or a dogmatic claim that's been most difficult, but just that difficulty of being faithful and how to be obedient and loyal and true to the church while at the same time being able to speak freely about, you know, the difficulties in terms of the church's leaders and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, what's going on in the church. Can you talk about your experience coming into the Catholic faith? So you mentioned you weren't raised Catholic. So how did that come about? In one sense, I joke and say, well, that was Notre Dame football that brought me. <laughs> I, grew up, I grew up in northern Indiana, and so you know, Notre Dame football was, was the thing. 
but the reality is, is that I grew up partly in sort of non-denominational Baptistic tradition, but when I was young, my parents started attending a Christian Reformed church in the sort of the Dutch Calvinist tradition, very rich theological history. And so I was raised with a lot of very good catechesis in, in that vein. But I was also very much interested in stories and novels and things like that. And I was looking for stories and, and fiction that responded to and was born out of faithfulness. And what I found was those who produced the best stuff were generally speaking in this sort of sacramental tradition. I became obsessed with C.S. Lewis as a junior high student. Then he led me on to Tolkien and Chesterton and all of these Catholic figures. I then discovered Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy. Hmm. I became attracted to this sort of um, the sacramental tradition and it became open to Catholicism. In college then, I began to wrestle with a lot of questions about how do you determine what orthodoxy is? My denomination was asking a lot of questions about the relationship of science to Genesis, the origins question, how does evolution fit with a notion of God as creator? We were wrestling with practical questions of, well, can women be admitted to the presbyteral ministry? And I found that the Reformed tradition, while very strong and broad, had gaps in it, and there were things missing. And I began to be attracted to the Catholic tradition, and I found that Catholic tradition had a very nuanced understanding of the interplay of scripture, tradition, and authority. It's uh, described often as a kind of a threefold chord that doesn't always work easily, but it's reliable and it gets you to the point where you're accepting all of truth. There's a sort of a Newman connection insofar as I spent my junior year, spring of my college career in Oxford at a program called the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies. And I, at one point, we met with an Oxford professor in the Oriel Common Room, where Newman would have been, you know, 100 and, 150 years before. And I went to the university church hmm. several times where Newman preached, as well as Dun Scotus in the Middle Ages and then C.S. Lewis in the 20th century. Right. And I met a number of people who were sort of on the same journey that I was. Hmm. Shortly after uh, I had graduated from college, a friend who was on this journey with me we were driving around in the fall in Michigan, you know, looking at the beautiful colors. The Midwest has the most beautiful season for, for leaves. Mm-hmm. And we stopped for gas at a country gas station. And my friend looked at me and said, you know, we have to become Catholic. <laughs> and I, I said, yeah, you're right. Finished getting the gas, got in the car. And I said, how do we do that? And he said, I have no idea. <laughs> um, but we figured it out and we're, you know, eventually we're brought into the church. But... It was that sense that the Catholic Church, despite all of its foibles and, and problems, was in part that way because it held the maximum amount of truth. Hmm. And it incorporated all of these different points of view in getting to this authority. So in many ways, it was influenced by Newman. Right. I've been seeing that. So in your personal spiritual life, if you don't mind me asking, um, I'm curious how he has become, in your thorough study, an inspiration for you through your spiritual discernment and relationship with God. How important has he been when it comes to, you know, being an icon for you to aspire towards? It's not that I don't think of anybody else, but for me, Newman has become one of those main figures through whom I kind of interpret things. And in many ways, because he covered so many of the areas that are important. There's so much I could talk about with him with regard to his contributions to the question of the relationship between faith and reason, 
what Catholic education should be, what conscience is and is not, how does doctrine develop? And it's because of those questions that I often turn to him instinctively. But I also, for spiritual sustenance, I turn to his sermons. Jess, you asked earlier about this big brain, this intellectual. But if you read his sermons, they're comprehensible by, by pretty much anybody. And I think when people discover his sermons, they think that they're going to be a lot of technical language about right. the Trinity and fourth century debates. But his sermons were very practical and they were aimed at a penetration into the hearer's hearts. He was not a dramatic preacher. And so if you're reading them, you're not reading them for fireworks. And if you were listening to him in the 1830s or 1840s, you wouldn't be listening to him as a sort of dramatic pulpit orator. Hmm. But as many people said about him at the time, you know, he would read his sermons in a kind of quiet, calm voice. But people were made to think about the things that he was talking about and hmm. not about the preacher. I always tell people, read his sermons, you know, especially during Lent, because they will penetrate you with warm fire because they're really asking the question of, what have you done to respond to the grace that's within you? I mean, one of his sermons, The Ventures of Faith, is essentially asking the question of, granted that you're a Christian, let's say that we took that away, what would be different about your life? You know, that makes you ask the question, what do I do that's purely out of obedience to God? Mm. And, you know, it's an uncomfortable feeling. But I find that, you know, I turn back to him because I want to be asked those questions. Mm. I shy away from them, but there is a part of me that still actually wants the truth. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask about your writings because you have a huge body of work. I mean, it says over, you know, 250 articles. I think that's what Jess mentioned in your introduction. But much of it through Logos and other journals of intrigue for Catholic thought and culture. But of your writings, is there one particular piece that you think of when you think about Newman's outreach to not only within the Catholic community, but within the greater Christian community, and then outward before that, you know, every person on this planet. But do you have a piece that you've written that you see as something for people of a not necessarily religious tradition to get introduced to Newman in a way through your writing. Do you have one that you could think of? I did a piece a number of years ago called An Odd Couple, Chesterton and Newman, (laughs) that is a kind of introduction. One was 300 pounds and one was a rather thin man. One was an academic, one was a journalist who spent a lot of his time in Fleet Street pubs. But they do witness to a common vision. And so I covered in there the similarities between their vision, as well as some of the differences. But it it serves as a kind of introduction Mm -hmm. to both Chesterton and Newman. I think that's probably the the best sort of all-purpose introduction Mm -hmm. that I've written. I've got a book proposal that I've been working on that's about Chesterton and Newman that would be Mm -hmm. based on this, because I think there's much to be written. Uh, Ian Carr, the English priest, and he's sort of the dean of Newman scholars, Mm -hmm. locates them both in the sort of the Victorian sage tradition, those great Victorian writers Mm -hmm. like Ruskin and Macaulay and people like that who were able to speak kind of prophetically and to speak about reality in a way Mm -hmm. that was gripping to people, whether they agreed with them or not. Over the next few years, one of my goals is to kind of develop that to show where they're going. I definitely wanted to pivot the conversation as well to Catholic studies at the University of St. Thomas and Catholic studies at a modern research university, asking some questions about, you know, the faith traditions of Christianity and Catholicism and beyond. Your current project is working on, and I would butcher the name, so I would allow you to just explain Alexander uh, 
Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn. Yes. Could you just tell us about uh, that project that you're working on and what's going into that and where did that come from? One of my mentors at Calvin College, Ed Erickson, was one of the early Solzhenitsyn scholars and he in fact worked with the great author on doing a one-volume abridged Gulag Archipelago mm -hmm. volume mm -hmm. that's been used over and over again. And Ed died uh, about two years ago. And a colleague of mine at John Brown University, Jessica Hooten Wilson, who had been kind of mentored by Ed as well, she and I started talking and we said, you know, we'd like to do something in Ed's memory on these great Russian writers, particularly Solzhenitsyn. And what we came up with was a volume of essays about influence on American writers and on the West from the Russian writers, particularly Solzhenitsyn, mm -hmm. as well as areas in which they can teach us about things. Mm -hmm. And so we have about 15 or 20 essays at this point that hopefully will be accepted, or we're very close to acceptance at a press right now. Mm -hmm. And it's going to have some great uh, Solzhenitsyn scholars and literary scholars. Ralph Wood of Baylor University has an essay in there. Dan Mahoney, the political philosopher at Assumption College. Mm. Gary Saul Morrison, Slavic languages professor at Northwestern. He's got a great cast of characters. Uh, Joseph Pierce, who's also a biographer of Chesterton and Belloc, as well as Solzhenitsyn, has a great essay. Mm. So it's called Beyond the Soul and Barbed Wire, the Continuing Influence of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And uh, I think it's important because Solzhenitsyn was somebody who lived in the next century after Newman and witnessed the horrors of the tide of what Newman called infidelity or secularism mm -hmm. and how that manifested itself throughout the world. And he discovered many things. Solzhenitsyn's own conversion back to Christianity came in part because of his discovery of his conscience. And it actually dovetails quite well with some of Newman's writings on conscience. Mm -hmm. That is the cornerstone, and that's where Solzhenitsyn found himself, was mm -hmm. as an early lover of the communist project, the socialist dream, he suddenly realized that it was untethered from conscience. Mm -hmm. And when he discovered justice, what he called the cornerstone of the universe, that's when he started to make his way back through providence to Christian belief. So I'm very happy to be working on this in memory of my Protestant mentor, working on a Russian Orthodox author. Um, <laughs> but also, I think it dovetails very nicely with my work on Newman and, and conscience. You work at the University of St. Thomas. It's unique. I mean, it is a Catholic university, but it also has a Catholic studies department, which is exceptional in and of itself because of its robustness and the quality of professors. But do you see the University of St. Thomas and its Catholic Studies Department as a model for other Catholic universities on a national scale? Yes, it's the oldest and the largest Catholic Studies program in the country. And it's already served as a model for a number of Catholic Studies programs at the University of Dayton, uh, the University of Mary in North Dakota. It's also been a kind of model for many of the programs on secular campuses, like the Newman program at the University of Nebraska, I think that the famous Texas A&M Aggie Catholic program also bears some interest. So it's already been an influence on programs both at Catholic universities and at secular universities of various sorts. And I think it's going to continue to be so because of the distinctive approach that we've taken to sort of integrating faith and learning in a program that's both intellectual and spiritual and social. I'm very proud of, of the influence it's had, and I, I think it's going to continue to influence people. I agree. I think it's interesting when you think about the current modern research university. I'm curious how you see the future of a modern research university like the University of Pennsylvania mm -hmm. with respect to a Catholic intellectual tradition. 
Do you see the possibility of implementing a more specific for-credit Catholic studies program in secular universities like Penn, perhaps under the Religious Studies Department or apart from it? But how do you see that looking into the future of more secular universities? Yeah, I think that there will be a growth in programs that are offered for credit. You know, even at places that don't have a Catholic Studies Department or Center, many of them have now gotten endowed Catholic Studies chairs Hmm. that have tried to inject a note of this great tradition that really is the basis in many ways of our Western university and, Hmm. and cultural tradition. Don Briel, who was the founder of our Catholic Studies program, he died just about a year ago. He was a great Newman scholar. He had conversations with uh, university presidents and administrators, many of whom would tell him that, look, you know, one of the reasons why we need these presence of these, you know, Catholic studies centers, and as well as other religious studies centers, is that they actually are doing what universities were meant to do, which is ask the universal questions. Mm -hmm. The way in which the modern university has often gone in a very specialized and technocratic way is good in a way for a narrow definition of progress, but it makes it difficult to ask the big questions. And I think many people are aware that that's the case. Um, So I think there's a galvanizing effect of having a center for Catholic studies, which interacts with, you know, religious believers of all sorts, but also with secular thinkers as well, and is able to ask those big questions. I think in many places there are opportunities for for credit courses. Many of the people who are involved in these, as I say, are endowed chairs of Catholic studies, and even the people who are staffing programs often have PhDs and the research agenda, so they're often allowed to teach or even asked sometimes to teach courses in Catholic cultural and theological and philosophical traditions, and I think that that's an important thing. You mentioned in your talk last night, the title of it was Allies in a Time of Trouble, Mm -hmm. and talking about how Catholics and non-Catholic Christians can unite more in this current day and age based on the belief systems and not just in a, as you put it, not just on a fuzzy, warm sense of unity and love way, but on a more theological and deep philosophical level Mm -hmm. and discussion and relationship. So how does that translate to looking to people from different faith traditions? Because Penn is a very diverse place Mm -hmm. with people from many different backgrounds, as are a lot of universities around the country, specifically talking about secular ones. But Looking at Newman's example, how do we extrapolate that and work with people of different faith traditions and religious backgrounds and, you know, discuss with them these difficult universal questions that you said? We already see it in many ways. On many university campuses, those who are believers are united and sort of asking especially basic philosophical questions. I mean, Catholics are very much indebted to a lot of Christian philosophers, a Protestant bent and and Orthodox bent over the last 30 or 40 years for raising the level of philosophical discourse about basic issues about God and morality and these sorts of issues. And so I think that there are lots of academic openings, you know, for cooperation at the University of St. Thomas. Our Catholic Studies program has contributions from some non-Catholic professors We work closely with Anselm House, which is a a Christian studies ministry, kind of similar to the Collegium Institute, but more on a Protestant but ecumenical basis. And they are working with professors at the University of Minnesota who are sympathetic to Christianity or even sometimes Christians. So I think there are just all sorts of opportunities 
to ask questions together. You know, we think the moral issues and the ethical issues are, you know, well, we can't talk about that. But I think in many cases, those are the issues that people are interested in, especially with uh, with the questions about biotechnology. And, mm-hmm. You know, like what are the limits of genetic modification of organisms? What are the limits in biomedical issues about organ donation, about this, about that? Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are very interested in what Catholics and other believers have to say, and I think there's a great advantage in coming to people with that sort of similar bent, if you will, about what it means to be human Mm. and what dignity means, and then ask the question, well, what are we and what is our worth? (laughs) What, What are the things that are appropriate and what are the things that don't destroy that dignity but instead help us to flourish? So I think there's a hunger to hear that. But at the same time, there are difficulties because there's a sort of shout-down culture of people who are injecting religion into things. But I think that that culture can be counteracted by a few people willing to sit down and say, let's have a civilized discussion about things and really listen to each other. Newman was against simple sort of logic chopping as an answer to things. And he had a philosophical view that tended towards seeing the whole human person as a reasoner and not just a sort of calculator putting out probabilities. And so his view was that in any sort of moral discourse, you know, often testimony is one of the strongest things. Mm -hmm. And I think people are open to hearing that. It's a bit difficult sometimes. And I mean, you noted this because in the Christian and Catholic faith traditions, there is a large focus on evangelization because it's so deeply rooted in our history as a church. And so it's sometimes difficult to toe the line between, you know, having that wonderful, intense religious discussion and debate and trying to, in a way, influence and not necessarily preach, but spread the the gospel to other people through the wonderful intellectual and spiritual tradition that you or, you know, they have been a part of. I was curious what you think about that sort of line between having that fruitful debate and it becoming more of a form of evangelization. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this idea that we want to sort of have sort of, you know, 50,000 feet above the ground discussion that doesn't touch on real life is unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And I think we should think about what we're doing as evangelization. When we are seeking together with people after the truth, It's not because we don't have any of the truth. We believe that we have the answers in Jesus Christ and, of course, in the Catholic tradition. But that doesn't mean we have every one of the smaller answers, which is why we can look with people. And I think that what we desperately need is people who are willing to speak honestly and truthfully about what is proclaimed about Christ and his church. And to say, I believe that, and I believe that it has the answers, and I'm willing to talk with you. I think people are sort of weirded out by evangelism as if it's a sort of, you know, trying to drag people in by tying a rosary around their neck and pulling them into a church. But that's really not what it is. Um, It's being willing to speak the truth with people and actually witness in one's life. But I think also sometimes to ask hard questions, to say, hey, are you willing to act on what you think the truth is? People are simultaneously afraid of, well, I don't want to be pushy. You don't have to be pushy. You can ask questions. And questions are often the best way to get to things. Mm -hmm. A story about the late Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II, was that he would often, in the confessional, when uh, people asked for advice, you know, he would often say, well, now you must choose to act. (laughs) What are you Mm -hmm. going to do? Mm -hmm. And I think those are the kinds of questions that we ask for people. And when we get people asking those questions, they will often discover that Christ is the teacher who's speaking to them in their consciences. 
I mean, in some ways it requires a lot of trust and patience and also sort of a willingness to kind of not move in fear, but also just have actual like human conversations and explore these sort of big topics, both, you know, things that seem less important, but also the grand topics as well. And I'm wondering, something that you spoke about that really struck me last night was the sense that Newman had for the sort of patient course of history, if you will, um, but this idea that, you know, when some obstacle came in his way, he would continue to sort of work for it, but he also had a sense of when it was time to say, well, right now, you know, it's just not the time. And I think particularly today where we have, you know, a lot of problems in the church, a lot of doubt, a lot of concern about the future and what's to come. I'm wondering if you have thoughts about how Newman, and even Solzhenitsyn really, um, but particularly Newman, how they maybe speak to that, the sort of sense of maybe hope and patience and how we should sort of live in this, mm-hmm. what some might call a time of trouble. Maybe to begin with Solzhenitsyn, one of his most famous speeches was titled, Live Not by Lies. Hmm. And he would say, you know, look, if lies are going to come into the world, but let them not come by me. That's that basic sense of the conscience that Newman had. Hmm. And Newman felt that this is what we have to do, is to be patient. One of his favorite passages was from the Old Testament, where it says, stand still and the Lord shall deliver you. Hmm. And he believed that in many cases, when it's not possible to act, it's a very paralyzing feeling, but... At the same time, we wait on the Lord to deliver us. And when we try to act in authority, he said it's very difficult. Hmm. It's very painful. But at the same time, to understand that it's God's project means that maybe God has a different timeline. Maybe he wants somebody else to build upon our work. Hmm. Almost all of us you know, have a kind of uncompleted masterpiece in our life that's built upon people. Or to hmm. go back to his other image of doctrine, you know, maybe we've started the percolation process, but somebody else is going to get the sanctified coffee. And that's okay, because it's God's project, and it's not ours. Yeah. And do you think how Newman maybe would sort of engage with the troubles, even like within the church itself, and sort of being able to be hopeful in the midst of that, do you think his writings or his sort of way of approaching society have anything to say to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we tend to look back, well, everything was better back then, but even the First Vatican Council's declaration of papal infallibility and immediate universal jurisdiction of the Pope. I mean, that, this caused a lot of problems with many people. And Newman was not opposed to the teaching itself, but he thought that it was inopportune to declare it at that time. Hmm. And he realized that it would set people back because there would inevitably be the false understandings of what that meant, that the Pope was somehow you know, impeccable, that he couldn't sin, or that he was this sort of universal oracle who could solve every problem. Right. And he realized that it was a difficult thing. And he wanted to be patient, first of all. He said that just as the fact that when you get thwarted and somebody else then actually delivers on it. He said, look, this is how church history works. Hmm. You know, one council acts this way and another one follows and kind of writes the ship a little bit and then another problem follows and that's going to, going to happen. And he, his approach was to try to do apologetics in the best sense possible, which is to help eliminate reasons for people to not see the truth. Hmm. You can't convince them of the truth, but you can at least teach them about what that truth is. And you can be very honest about the difficulties in the church as well and say, look, that's that's just the nature of the beast is that it is a holy church, but it's composed of very unholy people quite often. Right. And God will use those people in certain ways. And so he walked on a very fine line, I think, uh, celebrating and, and accepting authority, even when it was used badly, but also speaking the truth about the problems. 
he would say that each person has a calling and some people are called to speak out more strongly. Like St. Catherine of Siena, several centuries before he did, you know, <laughs> would write and speak very challengingly to the Pope who was at present in Avignon. Right. Not everybody is called to do that, but the point is to be faithful and honest and work to what you think God wants you to do in this situation. Hmm. And eventually things will get better in this, but at the same time, <laughs> the history of the church is, as Tolkien would say, you know, a long defeat. Hmm. Um, and ultimately, we're not going to bring about heaven on earth. And right. Ultimately, it's going to have to be God who writes the ship at the end times. Hmm. And in the meantime, we can witness to that truth. What do you say to those who disregard faith and religion as a source of comfort for humans so we don't have to think about the void that is mortal death? And I know that is quite morbid, but it's an interesting question that I think about because whenever I have, you know, interesting religious philosophical discussions with friends or colleagues, that mentality of religion being, oh, you know, that's something to make you more comfortable as a person. That's something that is basically lighting your conscience. And my belief on that is twofold because in one sense, you know, yes, it does. But in the other, you know, look at what it has done for me as a person and what I can do now. And the examples of many other great Catholics, saints and otherwise throughout history that have made these huge strides for humanity. But the question is, what do you say to those people who kind of just disregard religion as a source of comfort rather than, you know, anything deeper than that? One of my friends who's an agnostic philosopher says, I'm not so much an unbeliever in God it's that I don't really care for him. And I think that's quite often the case. Uh, I mean, I don't want to say that there's not comfort in faith, because I think that there is, but it's comfort at the end of a struggle. It's the famous line of Marx, right, that religion is the opiate of the masses. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I mean, I would often like to ditch that part, because what religion means is not primarily, first of all, comfort, but it's challenge. Mm -hmm. It's God speaking in my conscience, telling me, you can't do that. You did wrong, right? You're not following the path you know, or get thee behind me, Satan, right? Or something like that. So, you know, I often tell people who give this line, well, you know, it's just all you're doing is sort of papering over the void of death. I'm saying, no, it's harder to believe that I'm going to be judged. I certainly don't want to trade and believe that death is just simply non-existence, but I don't think it's all purely comfort. I think it's, it's a difficult thing to say, oh, no, God has actually looked at my life and known me from inside and out, and will actually reflect back to me whether I've lived up to be the kind of person that not only my highest ideals, but God's ideals. I guess I, I focus less on comfort with this question than with the reality that faith is challenging and it's difficult. And if there's an opiate, it might be this notion that I don't have any judgment at the end. Mm. <laughs> so, Thank you. Uh, do you have any final questions, Jess? Or? I wanted to maybe bring it back at the end to sort of the sense of Newman as really being someone for the kind of everyman and this idea of really embracing the ordinary but also within the ordinary sort of seeing the potential for sanctification and for sort of just seeing the glory that's there and I think even in the midst of the kind of mundane. There are a few works on Newman and Therese of Lisieux in this hmm. vein actually and I've been interested in kind of doing a little bit more on this because yeah. spirituality is very much uh, spirituality of ordinary life. He was mm -hmm. not somebody who was subject to visions or miracles or anything like that. Right. And he emphasized the difficulty of faith 
was that it has to be lived in everyday life. Hmm. One of the interesting things is that many people, when they had come to Catholic faith, would ask him for advice. And he wrote one letter to a, a convert named George Ryder, hmm. um, whose son later became a Jesuit priest. Hmm. But Ryder was asking him what to do. And he said, well, look, while you're in the church, don't do extraordinary things. Get up on time. Right. Do your daily business. Right. Say your morning prayers. You know, mm. pray before meals. You know, all of the ordinary things. Right. Don't take up extraordinary devotions or anything like that. But instead, mm. live a life of quiet faithfulness. Mm. And if you're called to something greater, that's wonderful. Mm. But we start with being obedient where we are. Mm. And that often is in very ordinary life. In fact, one of his sermons, he talks about this, that, you know, many people, when they have a kind of experience of conversion suddenly believe that God is calling them to something somewhere else. And he says, you know, that occasionally happens, but usually what God's calling you to do is to go back, as some of the people that Christ healed, right. he told them, you know, go back to your communities. Hmm. You know, give thanks to God. And that's hmm. what God is calling us to. There are some parallels to Rezalizu's path of ordinary spirituality hmm. uh, that is very extraordinary. That's how Newman always was. Take care of the day-to-day -day questions. And if you're having spiritual trouble, be obedient to God in the here and now and in those small things. The clouds will be parted for you at some point. Hmm. But it doesn't come for free. It comes at the price of being obedient to God and waiting on Him to lead you beyond the darkness. Right. Well, thank, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We really appreciate the, having this conversation. Anything else that we need to add? For no, I think after? that's a great place to sort of end our conversation. It's been lovely to talk with you, Dave. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. And to stay up to date on upcoming events and programming, visit collegiuminstitute.org.